Good afternoon. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. It's Friday. It's 3 p.m. It's sunny outside. It's hoodie weather or crew neck weather in my case. Jay, must be cold behind the glass because producer J.R. Manitad has the, uh, the hood up. He looks chilly in there. Hopefully your Friday is going a little better than the Toronto Blue Jays Thursday. 10-5 loss to Tampa Bay last night. Another ugly Jose Barrios start. Six earned over two innings. Trevor Richards come in. He struggles as well. Uh, on the bright side, at least he only used four relievers. I don't know if that's a bright side. It was a rough one. Barrios once again pulling the football out from under you, from under our pal Chris Black, from under anyone who thought, hey, a sub three ERA over six appearances, maybe this was the struggles were behind him. No, um, some trouble planting with the front leg, some trouble extending further into his delivery, and he gets hit all over the park. Now, having said that, if you look at the pitches that were hit for hits, he did have some tough luck on uh, not necessarily bad at ball luck or anything like that, but Tampa Bay did a couple of nice pieces of hitting stuff that was right below the strike zone or just on the inside edge. It happens enough. You have to credit the pitcher with the negative there, but a lot of times those same pitches uh, might get by. All right. In any case, not the best time through the rotation for the Jays three and four starters in Ross Stripling and Jose Brios. Now you've got Mitch White going tonight. Uh, on the bright side, I guess, an actual bright side from yesterday, Whit Merrifield homered twice. He actually has big career numbers at Tropicana Field, and given how bad the Jays have been there for a really long time now, maybe this is a, a galaxy brain reason for that acquisition. Teoscar Hernandez also homered his seventh of his career off of Ryan Yarbrough. On the bad news side, Yankees, Tampa Bay, Baltimore, Cleveland, Seattle, all win. So the Jays now seven and a half back in the division, only one up on Tampa Bay and one and a half up on Seattle and five and a half up on Baltimore. We're going to get into some more of that stuff as we tee up the rest of this series later in the show. We're also going to be joined by Michael Bauman and Julia Kreutz. But first, from down in Tampa, it's our pal Ben Wagner of the Sportsnet Radio Network. Ben, how you doing? I'm good. Outside of tropical depression, <laughs> which was last night in the series opener. Too much of a thud for my liking, but uh, three more to go, as they say, right? What is the deal with Tropicana Field? And I don't mean as a ballpark because everyone knows it's a bad ballpark. I've been there. It's uh, short of the Metrodome in Minnesota. I got to rank it at the bottom of ballparks I've been to. But what specifically about it makes it so hard for the Blue Jays? Because... This holds up to like a decade worth of statistical scrutiny now that for some reason the Jays can't play well at the Trop. Yeah, it's ridiculous, isn't it? And as we know, there's been massive turnover from the last couple of years, let alone from even what is revered as most recently the best Blue Jay teams. They have struggled in this ballpark as well, 2015, 2016. Uh, it is a, a cavalcade of issues, whether some players aren't happy with the mound, some players aren't happy with you know the way it's set up, some players uh, don't like the backdrop, where it looks like they took a bunch of colored Legos and stacked up lights and video boards <laughs> and um, signage, and, and the batter's eye is small, let alone what it does to your body. 
And actually, in the last couple of years, the turf has actually gotten better on some of the players' bodies. So uh, all these things considered, there is absolutely not one individual that gets excited about a series, whether it's two games like the Blue Jays had earlier in the year, three games, which is more of the, the standard, or even four games like the Blue Jays are saddled with right now in a very, very important series. It's just very difficult from a mental hurdle uh, to, for a Blue Jay team to get over. And that's that's been my experience in five years coming down here. It's not great. And the way you describe uh, the back of Tropicana Field, it reminds me of it. And this is going to make me sound like an even bigger nerd than usual. But uh, if you had the old Stratomatic games, uh, the baseball board games or, or something like that, and you would build your own little wall for it, uh, I was guilty of that. And yeah, it probably looks something like uh, Tropicana is there better evidence, Ben, than weird stuff always happens at Tropicana than Whit Merrifield hitting a pair of home runs last night? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's part of the mystique of this place, right? Where <laughs> where we found the two unicorns or, or blind squirrels with nuts, right, that, yeah. that found him yesterday with Teoscar Hernandez hitting a home run and Whit nailing two out of the ballpark, which <laughs> was somewhat of a surprise for me. But, you know, the, historically... Uh, Witt obviously hits good in this ballpark. There have been good numbers for Teoscar Hernandez against Ryan Yarbrough. Those those are just the facts, right? Those are the numbers. Uh, I just I just remember talking with guys over the course of uh, not only about the trop, but there are different ballparks where individuals see the ball better. Matt Chapman absolutely loves going to Fenway Park. He loves the backdrop. Daytime, nighttime, it doesn't matter to Matt Chapman. He knows, and he's in this great psyche because he's had outstanding numbers at Fenway Park, for example, that he gets up for those games. He's comfortable no matter who's going to be on the mound because he likes the backdrop. There are certain players that have that with other individual ballparks, but it works in reverse, too, where guys really struggle. And that's one of the things that uh, I brought up. I brought up earlier uh, the the lights might be something that's different and all these things are outside you know the baseball stuff right um, where it is a darker facility you don't get that brightness that a lot of the other major league facilities have uh, it's it's tough it, it's tough all the way around and um, you know these are these are the days that you you really got to dig deep in my opinion and come up with something creative just to to break the mold and bring the energy up when you're going into the clubhouse to talk with these guys well Especially after a night like last night. Yeah, for sure. And I'm sure Whit Merrifield will be happy to talk today, but I don't know about anyone else. Um, in terms of Whit Merrifield, though, um, with those two home runs, his slash line as a Blue Jay now, and this is damning with faint praise, but it's almost the same as it was with Kansas City. We're talking only two points of uh, WRC plus away from what he was doing with the Royals when we adjust for a number of things. Um, what does his role look like the next little bit? Because Lourdes Gurriel Jr. is still on the IL, and we've seen Merrifield start in all three outfield spots. Uh, and now Santiago Espinal is on the IL. And yes, Otto Lopez is back up, but I think they're trying to set some sort of record for most days of service time with only one plate appearance with Otto Lopez. Uh, is Merrifield not every day, but it, it, does he have an opportunity here to make a case for uh, a more permanent role that, you know, it seemed he had he had lost that opportunity as recently as a few days ago? Yeah, well, I think that it started to fade because Witt wasn't hitting. Mm -hmm. And until the last couple of weeks, and while the Blue Jays were happy with his plate approach and his swing recognition and, and decisions, uh, that they were waiting on the results to happen. And, and 
counter that with the Blue Jays need left-handed hitting. They need some left-handed hitting in a bad way. Uh, and Kevin Biggio was providing that, but he's cooled off now. So if Witt's bat is going to go, I would certainly think that he's going to be in the lineup given how much the Blue Jays need to have some sort of production from somebody. You know, whether it's second base, and that seems to be the hole that Kevin or Witt will fill primarily now moving forward given the opportunity without Santiago Espinal landing on the injured list for 10 days. This is a great, great time for somebody to have a hot hand and fill a need defensively and offensively for the Blue Jays. So if if it is wit, right now is the time to seize that and certainly he's going to do that and I, and I, would, I would expect for him to start at second base tonight for the Blue Jays and, and likely over Kevin Vigio too. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see. Um, a lefty on the mound in Jeffrey Springs, but a lefty with some reverse platoon splits. So the Jays might get a little creative there. Um, ben, before we turn our focus uh, to tonight's game and the rest of the series, last night, the other part of that, you know, Whit Merrifield hitting two home runs, that's great. But the Jays lose pretty badly, and Jose Brios has yet another tough one. Six earned over two innings. Yes, you can get into some of the pitch specifics and what, pitches Tampa Bay hit and and it doesn't look that bad when you dig into it but this has been kind of a running conversation of well anytime Jose Brios has a bad outing you you can dig in and find some bright lights um where are you on Brios in general because I I compared his season to some of his prior seasons I even tweeted out a, a little graph to keep with the nerd stuff um and as much as he does have a lot of quality starts on the year he really hasn't had many that touch great. And the bottom ones, the lower tier ones, have been really, really bad. And prior in his career, you know, he didn't have a ton, a ton, a ton of elite starts, but he really did a good job limiting the awful ones. Um, where is your confidence level in Jose Brios being able to figure any of this out this year? Also, is it raining? It's raining. It's absolutely pouring. I've been, I've been in I've been in go mode right now. I was enjoying the sunshine and just some open air here in uh, in the St. Petersburg area while we started our conversation. And then I felt a couple of big drops hit my bald head, and I thought, <laughs> ah, time to move. So uh, I'm I'm hustling under the canopy before we go to the ballpark here. So yes, I am. <laughs> I'm dodging the drops in classic late afternoon fashion in St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, back to the point at hand, Blake, there's a big concern. I'm very concerned about Jose Barrios because we have seen this over the course of the entire season. And last night, there were some really good swings put on baseballs with Jose Barrios. And this is the stuff that keeps Pete Walker up at night trying to find out if there was one tendency, if it's pitch selection, is there too much of uh, a rhythm to how the pitches are either being delivered? Is it the catcher that's tipping pitches? Is it the pitcher himself tipping pitches? This is the stuff that absolutely drives Pete Walker nuts because of the swings that the race put on in Barrios last night. I mean, 74 pitches. Is, is glaring enough within two innings, let alone the six runs. But uh, I thought he got hit and hit pretty hard yesterday. And, and that's, a, that's a massive concern because for every step forward that we think we get from Jose Barrios, there's a step or two backwards coming in short order. So, you know, I, and watching it with my eyes and watching the eye test, that finish that he had so great, those last couple of years with the Twins, and we saw last year 
I thought he was great. I, you know, got good power, good extension, and I saw some stuff floating on social media. I saw your stuff, uh, Chris Black, who does some great deep dives as well and uses video comps. Uh, he mentioned, you know, that leg kind of being stiff and too much at an angle, and that for me is where where I was watching Jose this year, looking for a little bit better of a shoulder, arm extension, and finish to the pitches. That's the root of it. When you can't get extension off the back and that power driving, not necessarily translating to velocity with Jose Barrios, because he could still throw 94, 95, 96 miles an hour, but he just doesn't have that life. He didn't have that life on the two-seamer last night, and those are two pitches that make him an extremely successful pitcher for the Toronto Blue Jays in, and that is what has been lacking for far too long over the course of this year. Yeah, and it's been a frustrating kind of whack-a-mole with him where it was like, oh, it's his placement on the rubber, and then it's the... You know, then it's where he's holding the ball prior to delivery, and now it's the the front leg placement and stiffness. It's uh, it's has to have been a frustrating year for him, and, and as you mentioned, uh, Pete Walker in the Jays handling that game with only using four relievers. Um, part of that was a good debut, a good Blue Jays debut for Foster Griffin. I'd imagine he's the guy getting option later uh, for Mitch White. But did you see anything from Foster Griffin that you maybe hadn't in his Kansas City stint? Because I personally was a little surprised Matt Gage didn't get that nod. Um, I, maybe the team just wanted to look at him. But I, I guess as far as team debut goes, not not bad from Foster Griffin. Not bad at all. I talked with Matt Bushman a lot before the ball game about Foster Griffin and what kind of gave him the advantage. Taylor Saucedo is on the depth chart, but he's still injured and he's had a number of setbacks. Certainly not going to rush him. Uh, they talked about Matt Gage, but Matt Gage has had a lot of opportunity with the Blue Jays, and they, they've got a really good feel of what they could give him. And let's be honest, you know, here's the guy in Foster Griffin last night that the Blue Jays recently went out and acquired. So if you acquire somebody, bring them in the organization, you better believe they're going to get an opportunity because somebody somewhere is going to lobby for them. If you went out, you got them. Why not give them a chance? And I looked at that that game last night and thought, well, this would be a great time to use Yusei Kikuchi. And then you think about the counter move, right? What do you got a guy on the taxi squad? So Foster Griffin, you know, this was a really nice audition. He soaked up two innings. The fastball, the, the cutter that he's got as well, uh, I was really impressed with the curveball. I wanted to see the curveball more. And they think with Foster Griffin especially – uh, that since moving him out of a traditional starter role, keeping him limited to a two to three inning window for him and getting him a chance to pitch maybe two or three times a week versus, you know, once every fifth day, that will be a major click up for him and they can they can use his repertoire. I would be surprised I would be surprised if moving into next year they look at him anything other than you know, one of those two or three inning roll kind of guys. I don't think he's going to go into a spring training capacity and be, you know, one of those guys that are lobbying for a spot in the rotation. So uh, the person who will be activated today to start Mitch White is probably trying to play his way into that two or three inning role for the postseason. Obviously, long term, they hope he can figure it out as a starter. He hopes he can figure it out as a starter. Um, Mitch White, last time out, three earned over six innings as the follower, really saved the bullpen that day on a doubleheader day. Uh, what are you looking for from Mitch White tonight to continue to build that confidence that maybe he could be a multi-inning guy on that postseason roster? 
He's got to he's got to throw a lot of strikes, he, and he's got to start with strike one. Uh, I believe that he's working with Danny Jansen tonight, so that rhythm that that goes out there with Mitch and Jano behind the plate, and you know, I think you're going to see Isak Paredes back in the lineup. Probably get maybe I don't know about this because of the shot into the shoulder of Yandy Diaz, but there there are some potent bats that weren't in the lineup for the Rays last night that might jump back in there and be there tonight for Tampa Bay. So not falling behind and being forced to throw something over the plate is the number one thing that I want to see established pretty early from Mitch and Jana within that rhythm. So that 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 to me, and to get through the order twice, that would be a win for me and the Blue Jays tonight. Also a win for you, Ben, if that rain holds up. Uh, we're going to let you go so you can try to stay dry and get to the <laughs> my, drop in one piece. My, our chauffeur, Buck Martinez, just rolled up, so the timing is perfect. Perfect. Well, Ben Wagner, uh, thanks so much for taking the time. Have a great call tonight and tell Buck we said hello. Will do. You got it. Be well, everybody. Ben Wagner, uh, voice of the Blue Jays on the Sportsnet Radio Network. He'll have the call for you tonight. First pitch, 7-10 from down in Tampa where it is rainy and it is 32 degrees and where our pal Keegan Matheson tweets that the weather app says it feels like 41. But the Rays play inside of a comically bad dome. So we'll have baseball no matter what. That's the one small thing. A little bit of American League East news for you. Daniel Kaplan of The Athletic reporting that the Baltimore Orioles have hired Goldman Sachs to assess a potential sale of the franchise. The Orioles would have to be pretty high on the interest list if you were looking to buy a baseball franchise if what you care about is a team that's going to win and be fun for the next couple of years, that Baltimore market and the current price of sports franchises, I don't know that it's going to be a huge profit center. They do have nice lean books, which, Hey, ask the Washington nationals. That's worth trading Juan Soto for that's worth, uh, you know, over in LA, maybe trading Shohei Otani for, I think it's kind of lame that, the Orioles tore down their franchise for an extended period and then are just going to cash out. But what, what are you going to do? That's uh that's sports in 2022. That is the current climate of uh, ownership with teams. I don't know. Someone's going to buy that team. And if they're willing to spend on it, going to have a really fun decade or so ahead, assuming the Orioles keep going the way they're going. But yeah, if you're buying that as a profit center, I don't know. Are you just buying it to then turn around and trade Adley Rutschman before he becomes expensive? We'll see. The Orioles, by the way, still hanging around that playoff race. I kind of rushed through the standings as we brought Ben on. But uh, to refresh you, the Orioles won last night. The Yankees won last night. Cleveland and Seattle won. And then the Jays obviously lost to Tampa Bay. So uh, Jays now seven and a half back of the in the division with 12 games to go. They're in the top wildcard spot, but the lead on Tampa is now only one. They have to win the next three games in this series to have the tiebreaker over Tampa in season series. They're a game and a half up on Seattle. They wouldn't have the tiebreaker in that matchup either. They're still five and a half up on Baltimore. Fangraphs dropped their playoff odds all the way from 99.9 to 99.6. Um, by the way, Seattle and ba- or, um, Baltimore and the White Sox, the only teams now not in the playoff picture with greater than zero 
percent playoff odds via Fangraphs, and that's just because the gaps are getting so large and we're running out of time here about the Jays being seven and a half games back of the Yankees. They entered last night only six and a half back and made a decision that, to me, implied they're done trying to catch the Yankees, even with three games left against them. Mitch White starting tonight and Alec Manoa starting tomorrow was kind of the big headline item from before last night's game, and here's why. First of all, Manoa's not going to pitch in that Yankees series. That would have been... Cool and fun. You could have got a a pretty good Manoa. I think Cole lines up for Wednesday. Um, That would have been a fun matchup. You still get Gosman Cortez on Monday, unless the Yankees shuffle around this Domingo Harmon in for uh, Frankie Montes juggling in, in their rotation. Anyway, Alec Manoa will not pitch against the Yankees. So on the bright side, that gets you an extra day of rest for Manoa this time through. It gets you an extra day of rest for Manoa next time through because he'll be pitching after an off day. It keeps your workhorse better rested heading into the playoffs. Awesome. John Schneider said, though, that part of the thinking was this lines Manoa up to start game 162. So Wednesday, the wildcard series goes Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And he said that if the Jays are still fighting for home field advantage, they would use Manoa in that game 162. That, to me, while I appreciate it from the fan perspective, while I understand it from a revenue perspective, and I can even appreciate the thought that you always want to finish as well in the standings as you possibly can, the idea of using Alec Manoa in the final regular season game for home field advantage, to me, feels like an overvaluation of home field advantage versus the advantage of having Alec Manoa in a game. So um, if your wild card rotation then lines up Gosman, Brio, Stripling, I'd rather be on the road with Manoa in one of those games. We've kicked this around a lot on Jay's Talk Plus. Some people feel differently. I, I Maybe I'll sit down and crunch the numbers this weekend of what it projects in terms of win probabilities against different opponents, but... To me, the idea of being eliminated without your best pitcher pitching in one of the wildcard games just seems like something you'd be kicking yourself for after. So what can you do about this? Well, you could do a couple things. You could win the next three games off Tampa Bay so that you have the tiebreaker and a four-game lead on them. And then you're heading into the last nine games of the season with what is effectively a five-game lead because you'd win a tiebreaker and you can head into that final series of the season confident in your home field advantage and line up your wildcard rotation. You can do both. You can have your cake, eat it too. If you don't do that, you could be heading into that week not sure where you're playing and not sure how to value those things. The other, the other way to do it, honestly lose the next three games against Tampa Bay, be two games behind them without the tiebreaker, and uh, just focus on nothing but lining your rotation up because you're not going to be the home team. I uh, don't think anyone wants to go play at the Trop. Maybe Cleveland. A couple weeks ago, we were saying Cleveland and whoever won the AL Central was was looking like a, a decent spot to land. Not really so much anymore. Cleveland's been cruising. Eight of their last 10, four in a row. Now seven games up in that division, winning record against winning teams, so it's not just beating up the AL Central. I don't think there's a there's any soft spot 
in a playoff matchup. So maybe you care a lot about home field advantage. Again, I understand it from a fan side. I understand from a revenue side. Can't get there with the idea of making an intentional decision where your best pitcher isn't throwing in one of the wild card games. I would say there's a good chance this doesn't end up coming into play that game 162 doesn't matter in a must win must figure out the seating situation. A lot can happen over these last 12 games, good and bad. So maybe it's not worth worrying about, but I'm a worrier. So I'm going to worry about it. We're going to take a break. We're going to talk to Michael Bauman of fan graphs on the other side. While the Jays were down in Philly, Michael got to talk to a few of those Jays, including Alec Manoa, and write about Alec Manoa and Jordan Romano for Fangraphs. So we'll take a break. We'll get the kind of national view of Jordan Romano's status among the top closers in baseball, even having two uh, shaky outings the last two times out. And we'll see what Michael Bauman thinks of uh, the big guy, Alec Manoa. That's next with Michael Bauman of Fangraphs on Jays Talk Plus on Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Hope you're having a nice Friday. Certainly nicer here than it is down in Tampa, where our pal Ben Wagner just got pretty wet talking to us. By the way, little roster move. As we anticipated, Foster Griffin back down to AAA. Mitch White activated for tonight's start surprise there. couple of Tampa Bay transactions as well. Ryan Yarbrough, who was pretty good yesterday, uh, hit the IL with a right oblique strain. They also designated Dustin Knight, who we saw yesterday for assignment. Um, Christopher Ogando and Calvin Fauche are the names back up for Tampa Bay. So nothing major there, but Yarbrough to the IL uh, could be a factor. I mean, they could activate him for the playoff roster, but we'll see. Uh, Join now by a man who was close to that Jays Philly series and all that chaos uh, enough to write two Jays articles coming out of it. It's Michael Bauman of Fangraphs. Michael, how are you, man? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, Convenient that you come on our show and then you get to see the Jays for a couple days. You write a couple Jays articles. This lined up perfectly for me personally. uh, So I appreciate it. Oh yeah. You know, the MLB schedule makers and I did everything we could to look out for you. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Um, any takeaways from that kind of bizarro series? I, I feel like the, I, I know it was a couple days ago now and, and in baseball, that's a, a really long time at this time of year. But uh, I would imagine Toronto and Philly who have a lot of parallels on the season, both came out of that series thinking they should have swept it. Anything stand out to you from either side of that one? Uh, you know, I think we saw particularly in the first game, the depth of both lineups that, you know, you're getting offense from uh, players that, you know, you've got the both teams have plenty of star level hitters, but they're getting offense from the bottom of the lineup. Dalton Guthrie's been on fire for the Phillies recently. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of the, the 18 runs that the Blue Jays scored on Tuesday came off of aspects of the Phillies uh, pitching staff that aren't going to be around for the playoffs. or certainly aren't going to be um, uh pitching high leverage in it, uh, innings, guys like Sam Coonrod and, and things like that. Uh, you know, but that with that 
said, like the name of the game is beating up on the other team's weak relievers, and both teams proved that the, that they're capable of doing that. You know, I think we didn't really, you know, I guess we saw Kevin Gossman. He pitched well uh, in the Wednesday night game, but, you know, the Blue Jays' rotation I still consider to be a strength, uh, and as long as that lineup can score runs, I think that they're – they should be scary for anybody in that AL bracket. Do you feel as confident in the Blue Jays uh, rotation after last night where coming off of a couple good starts in a row where it looked like maybe the worst days were behind him, Jose Brios lost it again. And it's not so much any one thing that he's done poorly or that he struggled with. It's more the kind of chasing our tail, trying to figure out, which wrong, which thing is wrong each time he kind of takes a step back. Um, I, I know in the in the playoffs you don't have to use your three four guys quite as much, um, but your confidence level obviously in Gosman and Manoa remains very high. But what about in that Stripling Barrios three four pairing? I think I have more confidence in Stripling than Barrios right now. I don't think that's a particularly controversial no. opinion. And Barrios has been, even when he's pitched well in the regular season, he's been knocked around in the playoffs before during his time with the Twins. So, it, you know, it's we know how talented a pitcher he is. I remain confident about his outlook going forward, but he just has, like, not a lot's gone right for him this year. Uh, so the Blue Jays, I think, you know, this isn't a novel observation. I think most teams think like this. They want to win both the games of the wild card series with, with Gosman and Manoa. And I think the decision to move Manoa back and maybe set him up. And this is something I talked to him about uh, when, when he was up here um, was like, that's important to get those two guys at the front of the, the first two games of the wild card series. And then you go game three, you can go stripling. You can get a couple innings out of Barrios. You can hand it over to the bullpen. You can just pull out all the stops and, you know, that is a must-win game. Just do whatever you can and make it up as you go along. You know, I, that's not a not the ideal situation to be in. Obviously, you want to have three shutdown guys at the front of your rotation, but it's not a bad place to be either because I think the the other teams that that they're going to be up against in those wild card series are going to be in much the same situation. Michael, what do you make of John Schneider, the Jays' manager's comments yesterday? That part of why they juggled Alec Manoa is not just for. One, two in the wild card with Gosman, but he said that the current plan right now is if home field is on the line in game 162, they'd use Manoa there. Um, personally, that seems a little too much for me. Like the the idea of a wild card series where you don't use Manoa or maybe he's pitching on short rest in game three with a limited pitch load or something like that. That seems a bit much for me. What do you make of that? And how do you value home field in that three game series versus optimizing your rotation? Ordinarily, I would go with optimizing the rotation, but the fact that there's like, if you don't have home field advantage, you don't get any home games in, mm-hmm. in this wild card series. And the other thing is the teams that they're going to be up against what, you know, not Cleveland, but, but Tampa Bay and uh, in Seattle, Toronto, Tampa Bay and Seattle are, I, I think three of the environments where I'd be most concerned about wanting home field advantage because it gets so loud uh, in Toronto whenever there's a playoff game because Seattle, this is going to be their first time in the playoffs. I don't want to go to Seattle you know, for the first playoff game there in, in 21 years and try to have to win two out of three. And Tampa Bay is just such a weird place to play. And, and the Trop, you know, we a lot of people get down on race fans for not coming out, but that's a very loud place when it gets going. So I, I think home field advantage it actually is quite valuable. And, and this might be the first time in my 10 years covering baseball full-time that, that I would say that, that I would really 
you know, consider burning a good pitcher to try to go get home field advantage in game 162 if it came down to that. Huh. Well, that's interesting uh, to hear a uh, different way of looking at it than I have. Uh, you know, I flip flop on it yeah, a tiny I, bit, I, but I think, I think both, both sides of the argument, I can see both sides. I think it's sure. It might sound a little counterintuitive to, to go after home field advantage, but this is just, uh, this is uncharted territory and I would want to control as many things as possible. Yeah. And again, there's always the possibility that you pitch them in that Wednesday game mm-hmm. and pitch them on Sunday on short notice, especially because with this juggling, you're getting them a little extra rest. Uh, he'll pitch on, on an extra day's rest in his next couple starts here. So um, possibly there. You did get to talk to Alec Manoa, and your Fangraphs piece that went up today uh, was called How Alec Manoa Got His Wish. Now, I was under the impression that his wish, wish was to eat barbecue and watch UFC with me, but I guess you guys talked a little bit more on the, the pitching side. What is Alec Manoa's wish? Um, how cool was it for you to, to get to talk some kind of pitching nerdery with him a little bit? Yeah, I mean, just generally, that's one of my favorite things to do in this job is pitchers in particular, no matter who they are, they tend to, it's such a fine-tuned business that you have to have such command, such technique, and like everybody can nerd nerd out and can and will tell you everything that they're doing. So, I mean, Noah's no different, but I've really enjoyed watching him pitch the past couple years, even like dating back to his days at West Virginia, and just to get into his um, get into his head about sort of the unusual career path he's had, the very fast rise through the minor leagues. You know, it, the the title of the piece comes from somebody told me toward the end of the conversation about getting moved around at the end of last year to try to set up Robbie Ray for uh, for those key starts. And he said, I want to be the guy that they're moving around to, to pitching important games for. And that's exactly what's happened now. And, you know, it seems – he seems happy to be in that situation. I asked him, you know, do you want to pitch more and or uh, or get the extra rest or you know how important it's getting to 200 innings? And like he gave the the standard like, oh, I just want to help the team thing. But he also <laughs> said, I don't want to make that decision. Please, that is, you know, somebody else make that decision. So I think he, you know, he'll be ready no matter what to ask for. And you know, I'm really happy for him. He's having the success he's had. I'll tell you, man, I can certainly appreciate having a couple justifiable options and being able to throw your hands up and be like, you know what? Let someone who makes more or makes, I guess in Manoa's case, yeah, makes more money than me or has more decision-making power than me make that decision and I can just remove myself from it and do what I'm told. Um, Michael, you did get into some kind of pitching specific stuff with Manoa and it was a it was a fascinating read to hear how he's absorbed things from other pitchers that he's been around um how he you know even something like well using hitter swings and how the guy looked against the last pitch when deciding whether to throw that four seamer or the sinker things like that um among the pitchers you've talked to does Manoa come out pretty high in terms of like his thoughtfulness about pitching or at least his, his willingness to talk about that stuff openly. That in particular, I think that was an interesting insight and something I did. I don't hear a whole lot from, from other pitchers. I, you know, I didn't ask him as granular uh, questions that I've asked from uh, certain other pitchers, you know, like the nature of the com- conversations I've had with guys like Corbin birds are, are a little different. So I think I, I didn't get into as much detail, but uh, yeah, you know, Manoa's thinking through this entire thing. He got up to to the major leagues and just has been learning as much as he can from uh, from not only it's not only that he's around good pitchers, but around pitchers who he has specific things he can pick up from. So Hyunjin Ryu and Jose Barrios, who for as much as he doesn't look like Manoa, they throw relatively similar arsenals, and you know, it, 
he's following a very well-tread path in terms of playing his two fastballs off each other. Um, and there's a lot that you can pick up as a young pitcher, and it seems like he's really committed to doing that. You know, he seems like a, a smart guy, a pretty thoughtful uh, pitcher, and, you know, you can, you can tell that by talking to him. You mentioned this statistically in the piece. I'm curious if you asked him about it. Um, the strikeout rate down a little bit this year, but it seems from the outside and from looking at the numbers that part of that is, one, you mentioned the innings and closing in on 200 here. That's allowed him to be more efficient and pitch further into games. And two, he has allowed very little great contact. So it seems like maybe there's an embracing of, well, guys are going to chase at my stuff and I, I'm i just as happy with them flipping it into the, into play without danger than I am getting a swing and miss. Did, did you guys touch on that at all? Did you get a sense from him? We didn't talk about that specifically, but that's definitely something that, you know, that's an approach that was really derided as recently as five years ago. And we've seen guys like Ryu, guys like Lance Lynn, who I had, I did talk about this at some length with him uh, before. I think it was either last season or the season before, but he's a guy who's been comp to Manoa a lot just because they're similar body types, but they are similar pitchers in that they use multiple fastballs to keep the ball off the barrel. And like, you can do one of two things with that. You can either try to get swings and misses, which he did a little bit more of last year, or you can get weak contact. And, you know, it's in the PCs allowing less hard contact according to our metrics than any other starting pitcher in baseball. And that's as good as, as a strike in a lot of cases. And all the more so when you're playing in front of guys like Matt Chapman. Yeah, absolutely. And Matt Chapman, uh, you know, statistical anomaly this year with the completely average in terms of uh, outs above average uh, via StatCast. But man, I don't think anyone watches that guy and thinks anything other than gold club candidate day to day. Um, The other guy that you got to talk to and write about with the Blue Jays, Michael, is Jordan Romano. And you wrote a piece at Fangraphs yesterday called What Jordan Romano Can Control, He Likes to Control Completely. And some of that was about his hyper meticulous game day routine. Um, he's a, an interesting guy and, and to hear him go through that with you a little bit was fun. Um, but also part of that is, you know, his approach on the mound. What did you come away from that conversation with Romano thinking about the most? This is sort of a weird thing, but you know, I thought it was like a very emotionally healthy outlook for someone in as high stress a job as his. Uh, Cause this, you know, a lot of the stuff that we, um, that we talked about came from just, a, I think, like a throwaway line John Schneider had in one of the pregame meetings while they were down here um, about Romano bouncing back from a, a rough outing about how, like, he looks at process versus results. And so I asked him about that, and that's where we got into, like, he's doing everything he can to keep his mind right, to keep his preparation right, to make sure that he's in a comfortable place uh, on the mound where he, you know, he used the word compete a lot, yeah, like a lot of baseball players do. And as long as he does that, he understands that, you know, he can miss by a quarter of an inch and that turns into a single, or he's not going to get a, a borderline call. Stuff like that happens. And it can ruin, you know, a closer, an entire team's entire season if that happens. And you just can't worry about that. And, you know, it's, you know, I didn't get the sense that, like, that makes him less competitive or less meticulous or, or less aggressive out there on the mound. But I think it, it frees him up to, to really just do the best he can at controlling what he can. Um, you know, as far as like the routine stuff, I think he thinks it's a little weirder or a little more unusual than it actually is. Like it just seems pretty standard, uh, not standard, but like not so far out of the ordinary that he likes to do a certain thing at a certain time, but it's, it's all about getting comfortable and, 
you know, putting, doing the little things right to make sure that the big things are easier later in the, uh, in the game or later in the, the night when the game is on the line. And, you know, it's important for, for major league closer as much as, you know, that job might not be glamorized as much as it was 15 or 20 years ago. This is still like, he's still got the game in his, in his hands every single night. And, you know, it's up to him to, to make sure he does everything he can to, to make sure the blue Jays win. But it's also a good way for him to, you know, deal with it when things don't go its way. So it's just a, an interesting conversation to, to have about his way of putting process ahead of results. Another thing, Michael, that you you wrote about in the Jordan Romano piece um, that was pretty interesting from um, not even statistical because it's more mechanical than anything, yeah. uh, but we have started to at least try to put a number on it to compare guys is the extension he gets. So obviously he's 6'5", and he's a kind of lanky guy, so he gets this great extension in his delivery where he's planting further down the mound, and, and that has the impact kind of obviously Jordan Romano throws very hard but I would imagine the big thing there is if you're releasing the ball even two three inches closer to the plate 98 starts to feel a little bit more like 100 because you have even less space to make those decisions over is that kind of the impression you've gotten from talking to pitchers who do thrive with with that kind of elite extension well this is this is something we've been talking about the first Picture, I remember this really being discussed when we started measuring it was Jay Happ, who, um, of course, later pitched for the Blue Jays, but he was doing really well for the Phillies, throwing like low, like not even low 90s, like 90, 91, not getting a lot of ground balls, and people just couldn't square him up. And it's because he was six foot six and was releasing the ball so close to the plate, his 91 looked like 94, 95. And so you take a guy like Romano, who already throws 97, imagine what that looks like when he's releasing it that close to the, the plate. And also his his specific repertoire where we talked about this too, this being this very classic four tailing four seamer and then sharp vertical upper eighties breaking ball. What that's about, because there are two options of, of what's going to happen when the ball comes out of his hand, it's making the hitter guess and, and the hitter can only, um, can only choose one of those two things to cover. It's like running the option in football. And the closer the ball is to home play when he releases it, the less time the hitter has to make that decision. I think it, like that can be particularly effective for that particular type of repertoire. Um, so, you know, I think that's, it's all, you know, it's many, many different things of why he's, why he's been successful, why he's been, been able to pitch as well as he has the past couple uh, seasons. But, you know, it's just one extra edge that you can get. And, and this is a game where, where every extra edge counts. This might be too kind of in the weeds here, but one of the things I thought of in reading your piece, and this is related to the extension, is um, Romano mentioned that he doesn't throw the slider necessarily as hard as he could because if he throws the slider harder, in his words, it gets more cuttery. And I'm yeah. wondering if like that, that is related to this where, you know, we know with a hard slider, what makes it so great other than the velocity is that it'll break more and break later. So it's really hard when there's that late break, but with Romano having such uh, such a deep extension and the ball's traveling a shorter distance, a harder slider isn't, it just doesn't have the same space to break that a softer one does. Um, and obviously, you know, that's a, that's a pitch. He has more vertical movement on than most sliders as well. Um, I, I guess I don't even know where I'm going with that other than just, I'm fascinated by your conversation with Romano. Um, when you look at his pitch mix and it's almost 50, 50 fastball slider, um, I guess just where where is your confidence level in Romano among the game's top closers in general? Because 
you know, that is a very good fastball and a very good slider. And until the last two games, he's had excellent, excellent results with it for like three years now. Um, but sometimes I feel like Jays fans don't have that like elite closer confidence in him just yet. Um, what do you make of that? And where would your confidence level in him be from outside? I think, you know, he's not to like prime Craig Kimbrell, prime Mariano Rivera level, but I think he's still a very good closer. Uh, you know, I think the the blown save when he was down here on, on Wednesday was, I mean, that's a pretty rough beat for him because he came in with a man on base and gave up a single to Kyle Schwarber and, and got everybody else out. Like Kyle Schwarber's going to get hits off a lot of off much better pitchers than him uh, before the end of the season. I'd feel comfortable with him. Uh, in that closer role or even coming in to try to get a four out save like he did the other night, just sometimes you get beat. And that's, you know, that is a lot of what we talked about. Um, yeah. It's, he's not, I'm trying to think of a, of a way to say this. Like he's not like a, a very like, you know, flames on the scoreboard, heavy metal personality. <laughs> like he seems very laid back. And I think that, you know, for a generation, for generations of fans that, that have come to expect, you know, you know, Rick Vaughn coming out of the bullpen. It's a little hard to, to get, you know, fired up or, you know, feel that confidence for, you know, laid back guy for him. I think he's from Mississauga. Right. And, and so it's, you know, I, I wonder if, if a, a little bit of a lack of that bluster makes him feel less intimidating than he actually is to fans. But, you know, I've, I've got confidence in him as a pitcher. You know, he's, definitely mortal. He could definitely blow a saber two in the, in the postseason, but you know, I just as soon have him out there as anybody. And then you have a guy like BJ Ryan who came in with literally with flames on the scoreboard and yeah. slipknot as his music and threw 90. So, you know, different, different ways to get it done. Uh, Michael, before I let you go this weekend, we've got your Phillies against the Braves. We got Jays Rays in a very important series. We've got pools going for 700 Aaron judge going for 62. Uh, what I, I imagine this is a multi screen weekend for any baseball fan, but what are you most looking forward to over these next couple days? Uh, the, you know, this weekend is going to be huge. The, the Phillies hanging on against the, the Braves last night was massive for the, the NL wildcard race. I think they can like, they can really put this, uh, uh, this wildcard race to bed. If, if they get, um, if they win the series against the Braves who are a team that they've had a little bit of trouble with, you know, so, you know, obviously I'm, I'm here tonight. That's what I'll be following, but in, you know, they'll have, they'll break in for Aaron judges, uh, at bats on the, on the big screen, but we're going to see a lot of the, uh, the wildcard races shake out. You know, there's a, a lot of teams, um, you know, the two series you mentioned right off the bat are probably where my attention would be uh, in terms of a playoff import. Uh, Cause you know, getting those head to head matchups this late in the season, it's a, it's a great opportunity to make up ground or to, you know, really put, put the boot on the team that's chasing. So, you know, it's, we'll see, see a lot of what the Phillies and the, the Blue Jays and, you know, Braves and Rays too are made of this uh, this weekend. It'll be uh, a lot of fun. We'll also get to see if uh, you know someone in a, in a game that's maybe not as tight at that point grooves one to Albert Pujols, so they can be uh, a part of history. Yeah. There, uh, I would be tempted to. Uh, Michael Bauman of Fangraphs, thanks so much for taking the time, man. Keep up all the great work. All right, thank you. It's Michael Bauman of Fangraphs. Again, uh, how Alec Manoa got his wish and what Jordan Romano can control. He likes to control completely. Both of those pieces up at Fangraphs right now. You can check them out before uh, tonight's game, before this weekend's game. I mean, Manoa's not starting until tomorrow. You got a long time to do the Manoa thing. And uh, I don't think Romano's going anywhere. So uh, the other thing, 
Michael wrote, and I, I didn't have time to, to ask him about it, but he wrote a really good piece on Willie Adamas, uh, who could be looking at like a $150 million contract extension. What stood out the most to me was within that piece, Michael put a table of the best shortstops in baseball over the last little while. And what stood out to me about it was that not only is Bobachet quite high on it, he's also way younger than everyone else on it. So um, he took a look at the top shortstops by age and contract status. And so this is sub 30 year old guys and their wins above replacement since Willie Adamas was traded. And Bobachet is sixth in wins above replacement among shortstops. He is at least three young years younger than everyone else on the list. So Willie Adamas is someone that I think people still think of as, you know, if not a prospect round, just rounding out of prospect status, three years older than Boba Shett. Dansby Swanson, another guy who's had a really good stretch and is on the uh, younger end, but is a, a free agent this offseason and is headed for a big payday. Four years older than Boba Shett. Francisco Lindor, obviously paid already by now, four years older than Boba Shett. Uh, even Carlos Correa, of course, Xander Bogarts and Trey Turner, um, Corey Seager, all those guys four plus years older than Bo Bichette. So um, Bo's hot streak has put him back in the the mix with some of those top shortstops in baseball in terms of statistical profile, wins above replacement, things like that. Also very, very interested to see what he gets in arbitration if they don't work out a deal because a shortstop at that age producing like that, even with the ups and downs, Pretty rare. We'll see if Bobachek can stay hot tonight. Uh, we'll preview tonight's game. We'll take some of your texts to 590-590, so keep those coming. Uh, but next, we're going to talk to Julia Kreutz of MLB.com. That's next on Jay's Talk Plus on Sports at 590, The Fan. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That's a little bit about where my head's at heading into the weekend. Uh, it's Friday. Hope you're having a good one. Jay's back in action. 710 down at the trap. Ben Wagner on the call for you on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Uh, there appears to be some confusion in the text line yesterday after we talked about Aaron Judge's 62nd potentially being on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, the Jay's game is not on Apple TV+. Plus This week, you can... Text into your heart's content, uh, angry about the Apple TV Plus stuff. Jay's game, not not applied. It's just on Sportsnet uh, tonight. So proceed as normal. The Jays not promoted to Apple TV Plus this weekend. Julia Kreutz, though, promoted to full-time at MLB.com. She joins us now. Julia, congratulations on the re-up with MLB.com. Thank you, Blake. I really, really liked uh, what you did there. Well done. I was stumbling for how to transition, but I got there. <laughs> I got there. Um, I guess before we get into uh, some of the specifics of, you know, what we can expect from you now that you're, you know, for lack of a, to use a Dwayne Caseyism from basketball, uh, happy on the farm or fat and sassy, whatever you want. Now that you've, you've made it, um, your favorite moment from the Foster Griffin era, now that he's back in AAA. <laughs> 
I will. I would have to say just watching him uh, give the Blue Jays two very, very much needed innings. Right? It's a. It was an ugly one yesterday from start to finish. Maybe not from start to finish, but it seems like the Blue Jays were sort of building up some momentum there, and things just absolutely got sidetracked very fast. And you know, he's not going to get any type of honor. He's not going to get a bunch of recognition, but coming in and, and, and pitching two innings, two clean innings at that point, it was pretty important for the Blue Jays given how things were going. So, you know, we will always have that 10 to five <laughs> loss in Tampa Bay. <laughs> uh, that 10 to five loss, by the way, and Foster Griffin's appearance necessitated by uh, another rough, Jose Barrios outing. Julia, I know you and Show had Jay's talk post game, so you broke this down a little bit. Um, what did you see from Barrios that was most concerning for you last night, or even most frustrating as we kind of continue to chase our tails when it comes to uh, what's wrong with Barrios month to month? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really fascinating that it seemed like we were over that and we were putting to rest any sort of doubt or or, or issue with Jose Barrios because he had been really solid maybe for his past three outings before this one. And then absolutely nothing worked yesterday. It, it seemed like location was not there. The breaking ball was not there. Uh, maybe the, the changeup, there were still some plus sides to that. But honestly, when you're putting it up an outing, the, the way that his sort of turned out, it's it's very hard to find silver linings, and I don't think anyone should be looking for it. You know, he himself said after the game that you know it's time to think about the last two starts of the season and and, and making sure that he's in a good headspace. And honestly, I think that with Barrios, that is a lot of what it is. It's headspace, and you know the the splits, the home and away splits, they don't lie. He's been extremely. Uh, better at Rogers Center than he has been away from Rogers Center, and that tells you all you need to know. And when John Schneider is saying, "Look, we're we're gonna fight tooth and nail to have home field advantage," yes, there is the the sort of the notion that the fan base deserves it, and it would be an incredible environment for the Blue Jays to play at home. But it also it, there's a, a sense of the splits and the stats and, and what the stats are, are telling us here. And that is that for a variety of reasons, the Blue Jays would be better off playing at home. So there's a scenario where Alec Manoa starts that game 162 and they have the series at home and maybe they pitch Manoa on short rest in game three. Uh, I would imagine they, they'd lean that way. But let's say Jose Burrios starts one of those games. How quick does the hook need to be? And I know he's had a couple starts where he starts rough and then is able to eat a couple innings for you. But in the playoffs, the eating of the innings doesn't, it goes out the window, right? You got to maximize every, uh, every game, every, every pitch. How short would the hook have to be? Do you think for Brios in a playoff game? I'll tell you what, it can't be 74 pitches, right? That's Not over two yesterday. innings. Exactly. There you go. So, Two innings, 74 pitches, and I believe at that point it was six earned runs, right? Yeah. Five or six. That, that's, not, that's not what you want to see from your starter, and that has no place in a, in a playoff game, unfortunately. So with Barrios, you can kind of tell right away, and it's very blatant and very loud uh, from the early going if things are going well for him or not as they were yesterday, right? I, I believe he surrendered a home run in the second pitch 
of the game. And from that, that point on, you kind of can, can get a, a glimpse of, of how the outing is going to be. Barrios, to me, is one of the most fascinating stories of this year because it's so unpredictable what you're going to get from him. And at times, it seems like everything is going great. He's striking guys out. He has the stuff. And then the fifth inning rolls around, and he just doesn't have it anymore. So where do the Blue Jays go from here uh, with him? They have to be very careful, and they have to be very quick to the trigger if Barrios shows signs of, of not being completely there. And there's a much bigger question that remains to be answered, perhaps coming into 2023. Yeah, I'm curious about that because, you know, I saw Eno Saris of The Athletic tweet a little earlier that at least based on the pitching metrics that he's developed and studies, um, what's most important season over season is that the shape uh, and velocity of Barrios' pitches is still where it's been. That tends to be something that's a bigger red flag season over season. Um, sometimes guys just lose their command for extended stretches. Um, do you see anything or, or have you thought of anything? Like, I guess where I'm going with this is uh, if I were to be confident in Barrios having a better year next year, still having good years ahead on the six years left in his contract, I would like to be able to point to something and maybe it's just as easy as a mental reset or, hey, take a couple weeks off from pitching and then kind of redo your delivery from scratch because he has had to tweak so much. Um, But what would you be looking for in terms of 2023 and beyond confidence? Um, Obviously, if he pitches well in the playoffs, we'll we'll be singing a different tune. Um, But right now, it's occasionally hard not to think about the the six years beyond this one that's that's a fascinating point actually Blake because you know one one of the things that I did notice yesterday is that maybe the velocity was a a bit down right a tick or two and that will make a difference against a team like Tampa Bay who will make you pay for your mistakes way more often than not and something else another development from yesterday was the, the command the fact that it seemed like he was leaving everything uh, hanging over the plate, and that's just not where you want to be, especially when you're facing guys like Randy Rosarena, who has been a thorn for the Blue Jays more often than not this year. So, those are the two things that you kind of you kind of need to watch out for, and 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 the break of the breaking ball as well. I would probably put it in there. To, you know, when when the breaking ball is not doing what Barrios needs it to do. You kind of see a little bit of a scramble, and and what can you rely on if that's not working? And that is when the mental mistakes and the delivery mistakes start happening for him. So yes, I think that the 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 you know spring training will bring him a chance to sort of rework some things, tweak whatever needs tweaking, and and and, and getting used to this new maybe phase in his career. With him specifically, I also believe that there is a mental component that is pretty strong here, uh, and the Blue Jays would do well to try to address that and, and figure out how to keep him motivated and focused throughout an entire season. So let's pivot to the rest of this series. Let's pivot to tonight. Um, the Jays managed to survive that Barrios two-inning outing only using a couple bullpen arms, including Foster Griffin, who is now back down in AAA, or I'd imagine more specifically is probably just moved to the taxi squad for the time being. Um, either way, 
Mitch White will start tonight. And last we saw Mitch White, it was in a doubleheader situation. It was in a similar situation to what the bullpen had to do yesterday, where it was a bullpen day and it was just, oh, goodness, please just give us some innings. It was actually one of the best outings Mitch White has had this year and certainly one of his best as a Blue Jay. Um, What can he carry over from that start into tonight? Keeping in mind, too, that it's the same opponent. So there's maybe a little bit of familiarity now. Yeah, and Mitch White will tell you exactly what it is that he would like to carry over. And that is the fact that he wasn't trying to overpitch, right? He wasn't going 100% with every single pitch, and that allowed him to command his pitches a little bit better. He's not going to be maybe, you know, the, the strikeout guy. That's not necessarily what Mitch White brings to the table. And I think that what we've seen from him in the past is that he's generating a ton of swings and misses, but he, he isn't really able to put guys away. So there, there is, he's getting ahead in the count and everything. And then he tries to be maybe a little bit too nasty with it. And that is where, where and when the mistakes will happen and, and teams will get hit and, and, and the OPS will climb and whatnot. So for Mitch White, it's, uh, it's about executing. It's about not trying to be too nasty to strike guys out on three pitches or whatever it may be and limit the damage. If, if you get a ball on the ground, great. Let Matt Chapman work. Right. Let uh, Bo Bichette, barring barring errors here and there, do do what he does. And so if you if you have that, then you'll be in, in, in a good position. And I think that Mitch White has spoken a lot with Pete Walker about that. He also mentioned talking to Kevin Gosman about that, which is a really nice relationship that is being built and a relationship of trust and, and learning between these two guys that. You're, you're not going to get seven or eight strikeouts in a game, but you can really help your team just by popping a guy up, getting involved in the ground, letting the defense do its thing. That is what the Blue Jays need from Mitch White right now, especially because of what, of how last night went. Yeah, and, you know, Mitch White is a guy that I remain high on long-term. I think that there's enough stuff there. I think that he's probably, as Ross Stripling told me on this show a couple weeks ago, a change-up away, and that's a hard pitch to develop, obviously, but, um, you know, the makings are there. The Jays like this guy for a reason. So I'm I'm with you. I think a more, you know, pitch-to-contact, trust-the-defense approach at this stage in Mitch White's development is probably the right move, even if longer-term he he will have to miss some bats. Uh, We don't know who he's pitching to yet. Julie, I I bring this back up because you and I talked about it um, a few weeks ago when he when we thought Gabriel Moreno wasn't coming up. Uh, we thought that maybe he would be staying with AAA until that season ends on the 28th, and then he'd be hanging around to, to kind of absorb from the coaches and the pitchers and, and the other catchers down the stretch. Um, he's been here for almost two weeks now and has not played a lot. Um, where, where do you land on you know, this usage of Gabriel Moreno and, you know, that, that balance of his own development versus what's most important for the major league team in a playoff push here. Yeah. It's uh, the Blue Jays are trying to win games right now. Right. It's uh, that this is the time of the year when development does take a little bit of a, of a backseat. Gabriel Moreno is up because the Blue Jays believe that he can contribute to winning games and 
getting to the postseason, which is the ultimate goal in these uh, final weeks of the season. That said, his playing development has all but taken a pause, right? He's not seeing a lot of at-bats. He is mostly a bench guy. He's coming into pinch hit here or there. We saw him draw a five-pitch walk yesterday and then score a run on Whit Merrifield's uh, second home run of the, of the game. There's still something to, to, to glean on the field for Gabriel Moreno, but right now the Blue Jays are concerned with winning games and, 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 and not really developing this guy for the years to come. There is, however, I, I would believe, a mental aspect of being around the team as the team tries to sort of make a run, ensure home field advantage for the wild card series. It doesn't seem like they're going to catch up to the Yankees, but it was a real possibility there. And so being part of those conversations, being part of strategy meetings, of hitters meetings at this point, that is the type of learning that you can't really emulate no matter how hard you try. So when you're talking about Moreno and his development, this is a lot more of a, of a mental, psychological, and learning opportunity for him than anything else, uh, which I believe will be beneficial for him. And, and I'm sure that he will have plenty of stories and, and, and huh. plenty of things to say after after this uh, this time with the Blue Jays as well. Yeah, I you know I find catcher to be probably the most fascinating position from the the mental side of it. Um, so I'd be I'd be thrilled to hear from him uh, as well next time the Jays are home or early next year. Um, since September fourth. He's only made four appearances. He started once a catcher. He's done a pinch run appearance, uh, a defensive replacement appearance, and a pinch hit appearance. I know that the third catcher role, if we look ahead to a playoff roster, is more about what if things go wrong or the very minute, you know, hey, you need to pinch run for Danny Jansen and you don't want to lose a catcher and things like that. But given the way the Jays have prioritized having Moreno on this roster the last month or so, would you lean toward him being on the playoff roster, do you think? Yeah, that is that is a fascinating question. I have been asking myself that question a lot. I, it, it's, uh, it's tough not being with the team at a point like this when they are in Tampa, and you could maybe ask John Schneider that type of question pregame. I would be surprised if the Blue Jays had Moreno uh, in that roster just because not necessarily sure how much of a value they will place on having three catchers on the, on the postseason roster. And they can maybe get um, speed or a, a pinch hitting bat from guys with a little bit more of a, of a veteran presence. So right now I would lean towards Gabriel Moreno not being on that roster, but I would not be surprised if he is because he has shown that you know, he can, he's a very patient hitter. His two strike approach is really good. And, and, and he is able to make contact good base runner, obviously. And when you have say a guy like Alejandro Kirk, maybe feeling a, a, you know, some sort of hip pain or something, which is what happened earlier this month, he's ready to go. We've also seen Blake him taking uh, fielding practice, both in the outfield and in third base. So He's giving himself the best chance to be there, and, and he's showing the Blue Jays that he's up for it. He's ready, right? Uh, so I think he's doing everything that he can do, and it's just a matter of strategy and what are the Blue Jays going to prioritize for October. 
So Moreno not in the lineup tonight. Jansen will catch Mitch White. Alejandro Kirk's in at DH. Um, there's a big lineup switch, Julia. Uh, Bo Bichette's going to hit second tonight and Vlad down to the three spot, uh, which hasn't been the case for, for months now, basically since John Schneider took over. Uh, we could talk about that one in a second. But the most interesting spots in the lineup for me right now are who plays the extra corner outfield and who plays second base game to game because Lourdes Gurriel Jr. remains on the IL. Santiago Espinal hit it yesterday. Uh, Whit Merrifield will play tonight at second because, you know, two homers yesterday. You're not going to send a guy back to the bench. Um, but with Gurriel and Espinal on the IL, what are you looking for from how the playing time shakes out from here at those couple positions? Um, because this feels like the Jays haven't had the luckiest of seasons with injuries, certainly with, with Ryu and Springer and Teoscar and Jansen all hitting the IL at different times. But if I'm remembering right, this will be their first extended stretch with two regulars in the lineup, both out. Yeah, I would expect to see a lot of Kevin Biggio at second base, but having a guy like Whit Merrifield is very beneficial for that exact reason that he can slide in there, play second, or he can uh, go to the outfield if you need if you need to maybe get a guy off his feet there or if you're just in a pinch as the Blue Jays are right now. But I would expect Kevin Biggio to get the majority of starts at second base with Whit Merrifield maybe sharing his time between outfield, second base, and uh, just bench. Uh, I, I don't think that Merrifield has necessarily put himself in a position to be an everyday player just yet. Last night was a great start, and the last homestand and what he did there was also a great start. Uh, I think that there's still a little bit more for him to prove. And then a guy like Rymel Tapia comes to mind, right? I believe he's in the lineup uh, tonight. Yeah, Yeah, batting seventh, playing left field. He's a guy that has proven that with consistency and uh, being an everyday player, his production does increase, which is a good sign for the Blue Jays, and it's something to, to be optimistic about. That is the value of investing in guys that can play multiple positions and having a guy like Whit Merrifield, having a guy like Kevin Biggio, whose production at the plate may not be exactly where you want it to be, but they are guys that can give you starts all over the field. And let's not forget, Jackie Bradley Jr., right? Mm. He's still around, and, and he can still slide in there in, in the outfield and play tremendous defense in the outfield, as we have seen from him this year. So it's uh, it's a bummer for the Blue Jays to have two guys, such as Lourdes and Santiago, on the IL at the same time. That said, this is why they sort of went out and, and, and got a guy like Merrifield. Julia, I want to hit you with a couple rapid-fire ones before I let you go. Is that okay? Let's do it. All yeah. right. Uh, your quick take on the Bo and Vlad swapping in the order thing. I like it. It's, uh, it certainly can't uh, get worse than last night. So <laughs> now's the time to try new things. And maybe that's what the Blue Jay need here. Okay. Of all the things you could list uh, to highlight just how bizarre a dude our pal Keegan Matheson is, how high would you rank the fact that he loves the Trump? He's in love with Tropicana Field. Um, I'd say that falls in the middle of the pack, to be honest with you. He is a a very peculiar guy. And like I told last night, I have heard plenty of reporters from outside of Tampa or St. Petersburg saying that they love the Trop. I don't know what it is, how they treat reporters. must be, you know, you, you feel like you're royalty. 
but reporters tend to like the trop. So that is why I would say that falls middle of the pack. Hmm. That's a, uh, I think we can point to, I don't know if you've heard of this. It's called lying. Uh, I think most people are lying in that case. Um, Julia, okay, so obviously Aaron Judge chasing 62 is the big thing this weekend. A lot of wildcard games is uh, wildcard implication series as well. But you are on the mound this weekend or next week. Albert Pujols, who is at 698 right now, is sitting on 699. Do you groove him one so you can be a part of that moment as he hits number 700? <laughs> Do you want to be part of that highlight reel for for the rest of your career? I do. If I'm a young pitcher that came up watching and probably idolizing Albert, I absolutely, like, it's not, I I think that's a cooler one to be a part of than, like, a big moment home run that is relevant for game or playoff reasons or even judges. I, I think Albert's meant so much to baseball the last 20 years that I, I personally, I'm answering ahead of you here, I would groove one to him. That's fair. That's very fair. What I would say is, does it take away from the moment if you just toss him a meatball? You know what I mean? I mean, have you seen some of the pitches Aaron Judge is getting lately? (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, Either willingly or not, (laughs) it would be pretty cool. Um, Yeah, for me, you know, I've, I've said this before. One of the highlights of my season was certainly getting the opportunity to talk to Albert Pujols and, and, and pick his brain a little bit about this, this final season and everything that he's accomplished. So I'm here for it. Uh, I, I hope that we get to to watch it. And I really, really hope that he gets to 700 because, man, that would just be really the cherry on top of a season that has been so incredibly weird and eventful <laughs> six games against the pirates to end the year you gotta think it happens for him you got it uh last one julia uh super bowl 2023 will be february 12th we found out today that taylor swift is expected to be uh, a part of the halftime ceremony so february 12th that's two days before valentine's day and it's taylor mm-hmm. swift at halftime are we going to see a mass breakup around North American society heading into that weekend. Wow. I had not thought of it that way. And I think that I'm too happy to think <laughs> about things that way. Blake. What are you <laughs> trying to say? Nothing. <laughs> I just, I don't think a Taylor Swift performance is going to hit as well. If everyone's happy and cheery, you know, obviously she has some, some pop sensibility bangers, but it's the, uh, it's the darker stuff where, where she really shines. Yes. It, it, how is that going to play in the Super Bowl? And you make a good point there because not everyone's going to be happy about how the Super Bowl is going <laughs> at that point. Yeah. Oh, we'll, we'll have to see how it goes. It. My, my Jaguars will be in that Super Bowl game, so I'll be very happy. Uh, they're top <laughs> of the division. Obviously, one win, they're ready to go. Uh, Julia Kreutz, um, this has been, uh, I hope, the right amount of silly for a Friday. Hope you have a great weekend. Thanks for taking the time out. Anytime. Thank you so much, Blake. Have a good one. Julia Kreutz, MLB.com. As she tweeted yesterday, uh, great news for baseball fans in Toronto and fans of visiting teams. Julia has uh, signed on with MLB.com on a full-time basis now um, and extending that partnership into the future. So that's awesome. Um, You can catch her on Jay's talk sometimes here as well, uh, pre or post game with myself or with show Ali. Make sure you, you follow her and check out all her great work. We're going to take a break. When we come back, 
We're going to take a look at Jeffrey Springs. We're going to take a look at Mitch White. We're going to take a look at tonight's lineups. And we're going to read your text to 590-590. All that's next on Jay's Talk Plus on Sportsnet 590, the fan. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. I'm a little tired. You know why? Got up at four in the morning to watch Canada in the FIBA Women's World Cup. Uh, Shout out to Savannah Hamilton and Javon Shepard doing the studio work as Sportsnet carries those games. The Canadian women, 2-0. Dan Schulman will be thrilled on his weekend off that the Canadian women have beaten Serbia and France. Now France had just beat Australia. That's two pretty big wins in a pool. That is very difficult. It's good for them. Uh, They have tomorrow off and then they're back in action Sunday at six 30 in the morning. (sighs) No sleep, no sleep to support the Canadian women's basketball team in the world cup. That's okay. If they keep winning, I won't mind. It won't be like the 2019 men's world cup where we were getting up at three, three thirty in the morning and the results were unfortunate. The Jays also in action on sports that tonight, seven, 10 first pitch at the Tampa Bay Rays. Ben Wagner will have the call for you on the sports that radio network. Uh, show Ali will have, Jay's talk for you post game as a heads up uh, the start times for the weekend games 6 10 tomorrow and 1 10 Sunday so keep an eye out uh, the 6 10 starts a bit of a an odd one for a Saturday and then 1 10 a little earlier than the Jay's usual Sunday start if they're at home next week the Yankees are here keep an eye on Aaron Judge maybe you've heard of him not sure many people realize but he's having a, a pretty special season He's sitting on 60 home runs right now. If you are like me, you're kind of hoping he only hits one this weekend so that number 62 could come in Toronto Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. I know, I know the Jays need to win games. There are lots of reasons for that. There's nothing in the rules that says Aaron Judge's 62nd home run can't be a top of the ninth solo shot in like a 12-1 Jays win. You can want to see history and also still be in the corner of the Blue Jays. That'll be worth tracking. Certainly Albert Pujols going for 700 worth tracking. The Jays have the Rays. If we're looking around the rest of the wild card situation, um, Baltimore has it tough. They're in Houston or sorry, rather they're hosting Houston. The Yankees are hosting the Red Sox, so the Yankees are probably going to continue to pad their American League East um, likely clinch scenarios. Cleveland's at Texas. They're so far ahead in the AL Central at this point that um, things are looking pretty wrapped up there. And then if you're looking at Seattle, they're at Kansas City. So some of the Jays' opponents, not the the toughest of slates. Baltimore Hosting Houston, though, could uh, could put a dent in their chances. The Jays can no longer clinch playoff spot this weekend. So we'll take an updated look at that 
on Monday and what some of those clinching scenarios are heading into the final nine games of the season. JSTOCK Plus is back next week, three to five every day because there's no funky schedule stuff next week. Then we get into the funky schedule stuff, the final series of the season, as well as the wild card series, assuming the Jays execute on this 99.6% chance they have uh, per fan graphs to make the playoffs. Before we get into tonight's matchup in detail, let's take a look at the text line. Uh, a couple people, including Brandon and Woodstock, saying that uh, you'd pitch Manoa on short rest before losing the season, losing the series without pitching him in the playoffs. That's almost certainly the case. There's a reason they're getting him extra rest right now, and it's because he's better when rested. Um, I, I just I don't know that that is a better. S- set up than Manoa Gosman in some order to start because you have to consider um, the tax on your bullpen earlier in a series and, and what shape relievers will be in for a game three, the benefit of potentially sweeping that series and getting two days off before the next series, how you're obviously you can't think this far ahead um, too much, but how your rotation would line up for the next series. You have to take all those things into consideration and, um, as much as I would want home field from a analysis perspective, from a fan perspective, all those reasons, I would love to do this show from down at some wild card games. That'd be amazing. Uh, I don't know that all of that would be worth on the final day of the season, um, sub-optimizing your wild card rotation. Uh, hopefully it doesn't come down to that. Scott in Port Perry points out as Julia Kreutz did that Barrios has much better numbers at home. He sure does ERA under four at home. He's had a couple stinkers at home and with something like home road splits, I always want to know the why to put much stock into it. Barrios struggled in Minnesota. He's, I don't know. There's just, there's not a real compelling home road explanation um, beyond some kind of intangible comfort level thing. Uh, and I believe in that to some degree because everyone plays a little better at home. Home teams win more often than away teams. There, there's a lot that goes into that, including um, the umpires being slightly more favorable to home teams. I just don't know that it's the difference between a four ERA guy and a seven ERA guy. I think there's some noise there. Um We'll see. We can last time we dug into that in detail, he gave up like a hundred runs to the Cubs at home. So let's try to not uh, curse that as well. Um, Someone who didn't sign there is just kind of laughing at the Apple TV situation um, for Yankees fans. I mean, you can have some laugh at it for sure. It's, it's not an optimal situation. I just hope that if Aaron judge hits an historic home run tonight, uh, everyone gets to appreciate it in the way that they would like to, whether that's on the via the television call, via the radio call, via social media highlights, via Michael K uh, putting up a I don't know one of those sites that you can pay famous people to say something to you and send it as a gift or whatever. You could have him doing that, calling it. Um, yeah, a couple other texts. Make sure you sign them, guys. Uh, name and location, so we can show you out. I don't like reading them if I don't know who you are. Um, Mike and Victoria doesn't know why or thinks you should carry three catchers in case of injury when you have five surplus guys to play the outfield. It's a reasonable point. We'll see if Lourdes Gurriel gets back to health, if Santiago Espinal gets back to health. But yeah, there are some redundancies in the outfield um, to where I would lean toward 
an extra catcher, especially if you don't carry the extra catcher, you can't use one of those guys as a pinch runner for a catcher in some situations. So um, there's almost a, a trade-off there, like a, a Schrodinger situation where if you want the extra outfielder, you can't use him because there's not an extra catcher. George from Toronto um, wants to know if it's uh, a logical discount factor needs to apply to the home run record because of PEDs. Uh, I accept that it's a record, but the discount provides more context than ignoring it. Um, I don't think so. Uh, none of those guys really, uh, I mean, especially Bonds, like the, the stuff that came out about him was outside of Major League Baseball. It was not, they didn't invalidate it. He wasn't suspended under the league's policies. Um, it was all the extra baseball investigations, which are real, but I don't think you can invalidate a record that way. I think the easiest way with Aaron Judge, and this is a bit of a cop-out, is just say it's the Yankees record or the American League record. It's easy enough. Uh, someone called me a Yankees fanboy. Absolutely not. I want Aaron Judge to hit historic home runs in Yankees losses. It's the best-case scenario. It was the best part of like all of late August, mid-September, was Aaron Judge became Shohei Otani and like, oh, he's setting a new record every single day and the Yankees lose. It's not a fanboy. I just like baseball history, and Aaron Judge is a fun guy to watch. Uh, Robert in Oakville says, of course, they're going to carry three catchers so they can use Kirk and Jansen as the DH. Yes, yes, that's why what I'm getting at here. That's where I'm leaning. Um, Tyler from London says, there's a situation where the Jays could get swept at home with Gosman versus Ray and Barrios versus Castillo, and Manoa doesn't pitch. That's what I'm saying. The idea of going out without your best pitcher getting in a game, arguably your best pitcher getting in a game. Um, Yeah. I don't know. Kevin and Mississauga says uh, they may need to replace Walker. I mean, I think that's a off season question. I think pitching coaches probably get too much credit when things go right and too much blame when things go wrong. Pitching is very hard. It's very difficult. The Jose Brios ERA splits question Andrew in Muskoka says um, other teams rest before his starts. Is he really getting tired lineups at the end of road trips or well-rested teams? I, I don't, I don't know about that. We like, that would have to be something we try to capture for every single pitcher to see if that's a thing. I, I don't know that we can put a, a lot in there. Um, TJ in Port McNally are you getting the Ricky feeling from Barrios? Did the Jays ask him to tweak things uh, and ruin them like Romero claimed back in the day? Um, I don't know that that was necessarily true about Ricky Romero. We've talked to him on this show a lot about tweaking um, mechanics, tweaking your position on the mound and, and the mental toll associated uh, with all of that. Uh, Mark and Milton, I'm not cheering for the Yankees. I like baseball history. Aaron Judge is cool. And if you really want to get uh, you know, anti-Yankees with it. Aaron Judge having one of the greatest seasons of all time and then leaving the Yankees is like the best case scenario if you dislike the Yankees. So what are we doing here? Unbelievable. Let's get into tonight's matchup and uh, take a look at Mitch White and Jeffrey Springs. So 
here's how the Jays are going to line up, first of all, behind Mitch White. George Springer, Bo Bichette, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. So big swap there with Bo hitting second, Vlad hitting third tonight. Alejandro Kirk at DH, Matt Chapman, Teoscar Hernandez, Rymel Tapia on left. Whit Merrifield gets a start at second base after hitting two homers yesterday. Danny Jansen catches Mitch White and hits ninth. Something to watch tonight with that Jays lineup up against Jeffrey Springs. Of every pitcher to face the Jays this year, Jeffrey Springs has gotten the Jays to chase outside of the zone more than anyone. 43% of the time Jeffrey Springs has thrown a pitch outside of the zone to the Jays this year, they've swung at it. Now, that's not a monster sample, but he's given up zero earned runs over 10 and a two-third innings against them. Only seven hits and two walks, so less than a base runner an inning, seven strikeouts. Um, One of those starts was back in May. The other was on September 13th. 70 plate appearances total for the Jays. uh, 30% strikeout rate for Springs. And again, that monster chase rate. Matt Chapman, Teoscar Hernandez, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. have all struggled off of him pretty significantly. They're a combined two for 29. Vlad has a home run, but that's about the most damage. Uh, Whit Merrifield and Alejandro Kirk have some small sample success against Springs. And Tapia getting the start is interesting because Springs actually has reverse splits. Despite being a lefty, lefties hit him noticeably better. On the whole, Springs comes in with a 245 ERA. Um, You're familiar with him at this point. He's yet another, oh, the Rays found a good reliever, and oh, look, now he's a good starter. Um, He has a big strikeout rate, keeps the walks low. He's actually 96th percentile in all of baseball in chase rate, so one of the best there is at getting guys to swing at pitches outside of the zone. He limits walks despite that. Um, Pretty well above average in terms of swing and miss stuff, and similar to... Alec Manoa, when we set up Alec Manoa starts, Jeffrey Springs isn't below average at anything, really. So he's, in addition to having this elite chase rate and being really good at limiting walks, there's nothing he's really bad at. You're going to see from him a 92-mile-an-hour fastball that, despite not being elite for velocity and using it up in the zone, opponents only hitting 233 against it. That pitch is your best bet to hit him for power, but 233 against a 92-mile-an-hour fastball is not... Great. He'll also throw an 81-mile-an-hour changeup. It is an elite weapon. Um, We can use a stack cast stack called run value that tries to take in the value of um, all the different things you'd want to measure about a pitch. That is the number 10 changeup in baseball by that stat. Almost a 40% swing and miss rate on it. Uh, 85-mile-an-hour slider as well. Opponents hitting just 200 against it. Not a ton of swing and miss with it, but a pretty effective pitch anyway. Uh, and then he has a, also has a sinker that he'll mix in. Against the righties in the Jays lineup, you're looking change-up fastball slider primarily. Against the odd lefty, he'll go slider fastball sinker. Again, the Jays with only Rymel Tapia in the lineup as a lefty, so not a, not a ton to consider there. Um, a little surprised that they only went with one lefty given Springs' splits and what we've seen from him uh, against some of the Jays' lefties in the past. Although when most of your good players, most of your best players are right-handed, that's going to happen sometimes. You also probably can't take Whit Merrifield out of the lineup a day after he hit two home runs. On the other side, here is how the Tampa Bay Rays will line up against Mitch White. Jonathan Aranda, Harold Ramirez, Wander Franco, Randy Rosarena, Manuel Margot, Isak Paredes, Christian Betancourt, Taylor Walls, Jose Siri. So 
a lot of familiar names there, given how much the Jays and Rays have played recently. A lot of familiarity for Mitch White as well. He just faced them on September 13th, three earned over six innings, only seven base runners, also only two strikeouts, though. Um, that game was kind of defined by a lot of soft contact for Mitch White, which is generally what's going on when Mitch White is at his best. David Peralta is the only Tampa Bay Ray who had seen him before that. Not surprising that he's not in the lineup because he's 0 for 5 with three strikeouts against Mitch White. Uh, Yandy Diaz, who is not in the lineup, and Manuel Margot, who is, both had two hits off of him. Um, the big notable one, though, only one extra base hit against uh, Mitch White over those six innings, um, and it was a single. It was just a double. So not a bad outing there. Um, they uh, Mitch White has slight reverse splits. Uh, so similar to Jeffrey Springs, where Jeffrey Springs is a lefty who lefties hit better. Mitch White, a righty who righties hit slightly better against. Um, so not all that surprising given the Rays' pl- proclivity for doing platoon advantages and looking at those splits uh, in great detail that they're not doing what they did against Barrios yesterday. They loaded the lineup with lefties against Barrios, had six of them in there. Um, they only have three, uh, a lefty and two switch hitters in there against Mitch White today. Mitch White, by the way, 505 ERA on the season. Underlying metrics that suggest that's been a little unfortunate. 381 fielding independent pitching, 404 expected ERA. I don't think any Jays fan who's watched him is going to feel too good about that. He has a 747 ERA as a Blue Jay. That is going to be louder than anything underlying. Um, What we've seen from Mitch White as a Jay is that his walks are down. His homers are down. Ground ball rates up. Those are all things that you want to see from a guy. Strikeout rate is down a little bit, though. And he has had a tendency to let hits pile up on each other. He is near the top of the league in terms of limiting hard hit balls, which is great. That's a good base to build off of. Um, Good at getting poor contact and getting guys to swing at stuff outside of the zone. But the issue with not missing a lot of bats and being bottom 10 percentile in the league in swing and miss is that there's a lot of opportunity for guys to hit well for average. And there's a lot of opportunity to string hits together. And you're at the mercy of your defense and sometimes batted ball luck something to watch for with mitch white tonight his slider is his best pitch his changeup looks pretty good in a small sample as well and then it's his fastball and sinker that have had the toughest time prior to his last appearance he was throwing his fastball and a sinker a combined 52 percent of the time he scaled that back to just 38 percent in that last outing a big chunk of that gain was he went from throwing his slider about a quarter of the time to 36% of the time. So a little more slider, even a little bit more curveball and changeup too, but um, sacrificing some of the fastball and sinker, which I imagine he throws as much as he does because they're the pitches he has the best control with and he wants the limit walks. Um, but I think when your slider is your best pitch and you were only throwing it about a quarter of the time, you can nudge that upward. So that's what I'll be watching for. Uh, from Mitch White tonight. More going on in the text line. Um, Jeff, Jeff in somewhere in Ontario, I'm not going to try to pronounce that, um, says judge can hit homers all day long as long as the Yankees lose. I agree. Mike from Toronto says, I'm drowning out people's texts with my opinion. Um, Dude, we 
doing 10 minutes of text line at the end of a Friday show. If someone texts in, I'm going to give my opinion on what they had to say. Sorry, man. Um, that's that's what the, the text segments of the show are. Uh, Dan and Ajax says that keeping Moreno was a mistake. Haven't seen any value in, in him. He should have been used for a key pitcher at the deadline. Dan, I, I don't really know how you even evaluate that. He's had four plate appearances since September 4th. If you're not seeing the value in him, you're getting to see more batting practice and fielding practice and uh, of those strategy pitching sessions than I am because we just haven't seen him on the field enough. Craig in Cochran says uh, the Jays have lost every game Merrifield has started. Um, that is, I'm going to quickly verify that. That's That would be a funny subplot if it's accurate. Um, certainly not any, you know, statistical validity to that. Nothing you're going to project forward, but it would be mildly amusing. Is it true? It might be. No, no. They won as recently as the Pittsburgh series with Whit Merrifield uh, starting a game. Okay, so we could throw that one out. But they haven't won recently with him starting. I shouldn't have to go back that far. Um, Brian in Oakville says the only two ideal scenarios are Judge staying at 60 the rest of the year or hitting two tonight on Apple TV. Um, anyway, we've got a game tonight. 7-10 first pitch, Jays at Rays, Mitch White against Jeffrey Springs. By the way, the rest of this series lines up as Alec Manoa against Drew Rasmussen tomorrow, Ross Stripling against Shane McClanahan on Sunday. So a couple fun pitching matchups. If the Jays don't juggle anything, they'd have Gosman Barrios White for the Yankees series. Mentioned it earlier, Foster Griffin is the corresponding roster move. Uh, he's back down to AAA as Mitch White gets activated and returns the starting lineup here. Um, the juggling of Manoa gets him an extra day's rest for tomorrow. Start means he won't pitch in the Yankee series and will then have a, a little extra rest for his next one too. Does mean though, that if the plan was initially Mitch white starts here and then goes back down. So you get another relief arm uh, that's out because you're going to need Mitch white slash bullpen day in that Yankee series. Uh, we're going to kick it over to Ben Wagner at 710 for first pitch. It's Ben Ennis next with fan drive time. Uh, but a thank you to Ben Wagner for coming on the show in the pouring rain. To Michael Bauman of Fangrass for coming on. To Julia Kreutz of MLB.com for coming on. And for you guys, for all your texts. Uh, it was a fun week. Oh, thanks to Ben Nicholson-Smith also. He did Monday's show. That's why this week felt so fast. Um, so fun one. Hopefully on Monday, 3 to 5, Jay's Talk Plus, we will have more good things to talk about more positive Jays things after uh, a couple of losses here. Uh, we'll see. You never know at Tropicana field. Thanks to J.R. Manitad producing the show, by the way, thank you to Brett Armstrong dancing along to the theme song behind the glass. Uh, thanks to all of you guys. Hope you have a wonderful weekend fan drive times next show. Ali with Jays talk post game. I will be back with Jays talk plus at three o'clock on Monday. Talk to you then. It's been Blake Murphy on Sports at 590 The Fan.